Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I'd now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Sherry. Hi everybody, my name is Sherry. I'm a compulsive eater. Hi Sherry. It's really nice to be here tonight. Thanks Mike for opening the door for me to come up here and Walter, thanks so much for being so gracious. Um, and thanks everybody for welcoming me. I really, really appreciate that. I was telling Walter on the way here, I was thinking, oh, I don't really feel that nervous. And then I started feeling nervous and I thought, don't worry, it's not like it's going to be a podium meeting or anything. <laughs> Like, oh my god. And then they're telling me about the recording and then all of a sudden my blood pressure starts going, Woo! you know. But um hey, you know what? I that's just everyday life for me. I mean, I am one of these people that's like wrapped way too tight. Like nervous is pretty much my state of mind all the time. You know, I I, I've never, even when I was compulsive eating, I was never a couch potato because I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm probably, I probably should be medicated. I'm probably like ADD or something like that, you know, I mean, because I, I usually am like going 100 million miles an hour on the inside, and people have always said to me, you seem very calm, and I'm like, oh yeah, let me just know, but you know, if you could look inside, you'd run away screaming, but, um, so anyway, I'll take a deep breath here and calm down just a little bit, but, um, I uh, I should give you some of the basics. I was, um, see, Overeaters Anonymous was suggested to me by a therapist in 1984. And she said, have you ever thought about going to OA? Because I told her that I binged and I starved and I binged and I starved and I gained a bunch of weight and then I'd finally be able to starve it off and then I'd gain it right back again, and then I'd gain more, and then I'd starve it off, and I'd exercise bulimia. And when she said, have you ever thought about Overeaters Anonymous, it was like she'd said, have you ever thought about flying to the moon? I was like, no, you know. And I can remember thinking, I, I thought I would never, I would never go to Overeaters Anonymous because I'm the kind of person who I will try to do it on my own until it practically kills me. I'm from the Midwest. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You should be able to figure it out. What's your problem? And um, and I can just remember when she suggested that to me. It just it was as if she said some totally crazy thing that I. It was not even like a real thing. You know, it wasn't a real thing. I and it just went whoop right over my head. Um, you know, it doesn't take long for this disease sometimes to beat us into total submission. I. Um, I I think I've been a compulsive overeater and undereater from time to time um, since I was a little kid, and I've been wrapped way too way too tight ever since I was a little kid. You know, it talks about in our literature about you know it's not just a mere love of food. You know, there are reasons, and the big book talks about um, you know that our behavior is just a symptom of a deeper problem. And I can remember when, um, you know, I first read that, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> you know, what are the deeper problems? I don't think I want to know. But, um, you know, ever since I was really little, I used food to really to medicate myself, to calm myself down, to sedate myself. I'm really sensitive to sugar, and it would, you know, it would send me really high, 
But then it would, like, bring me way down. And I was just so hyper all the time. I kind of almost liked that flatline feeling because it was one of the few times that I actually kind of felt sedated, you know. Um, and I can remember when I was, I can remember getting ready for kindergarten. I mean, every kid is nervous before kindergarten, right? But we lived out in the country. I lived way out in the country in Michigan in this tiny little town. I mean, I used to ride my bike three miles to my best friend's house, and I had to, like, hold my breath as I went past the pig farm. I mean, this is out in the country, you guys. And so um, I, in the first day of kindergarten, I can remember I said to my mom, I said, Mom, I said, I'm really nervous. And she's like, well, that's funny, that's normal. Not knowing that I was, like, anything but normal. But <laughs> she said, um, she said, what are you nervous about? And this was way out in the country, so, of course, the bus came and got us. And I said, what if, how am I going to know where to sit? And she said, you know, she said, just sit where there's a seat. And I thought about it for a minute, and then I said, but what if there's not a seat? You know, and my mom looked at me like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, it's literally not normal for a kid to be kind of premeditatively worrying about this far down the road. And that's kind of how I've always been. I saw this thing last night on PBS. It was this guy talking about mental health, and he talked about ants, ants. Obviously, you've heard of, like, ants in your pants. He's talking about ants in your head, automatic negative thoughts. I'm like, I live with ants. Come on, you know. It's like that is my, that is my head. You know, before I came here, before I realized, you know, just how sick I was with the food, I didn't realize that I was just living in all of that chaos that made it necessary for me to take that first convulsive bite. I just had to do something to shut up my head and food did that for me because food um it has it's actually kind of a ripoff it has a very small shelf life <laughs> you know it's like somebody can take a drink or a few drinks and be buzzed for a while for food it's like i had to keep doing it it was this hand to mouth hand to mouth hand to mouth hand to mouth you know it's just so um i mean i got through my whole life up until i got here um with very, I mean, I don't think that I had any, um, I didn't really have any reprieves. I had periods of time, just like it says in our literature, where I thought it had been lifted. I would maybe be able to successfully diet for a while. I'd be able to get to where I wanted to be with my weight. And I would, for a few days or something, I would feel like I didn't even want food, you know? And I would think, oh, thank God I'm cured. And then every single time it would come back with a vengeance to where I can remember I was in, I mean, all through school, right? I'll, I mean, I would go to school. I would come home. School was out at 2 o'clock. I would come home. I would basically sneak food and binge up until dinner time. Then I would eat dinner. Then I would sneak food and binge the whole night. Then I would pass out on the couch because my body can't handle sugar and all the other stuff I was putting in it. I would go to bed. I'd get up and I'd do the next thing. The, next, the same thing the very next day. It was just every day was the same in terms of my compulsive eating. It never changed. And, um, you know, growing up out in the country, we went to my grandma's house a lot, and she literally had, I'm not kidding you, this woman would bake like ten pies. And we had a family, big family, but it wasn't that big, you know. It was like, it was like half a pie for everybody, you know. And, um, and anywhere you sat in her house, you could reach and hit a candy bowl. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Anywhere you could reach and hit a candy bowl. So, of course, I loved going to Grandma's. 
And um, all of my uh, cousins, because we did have kind of a big family, would be out playing and swinging in the barn and landing in the hay and, you know, um, sledding down the hill in the middle of winter. And I always just wanted to be in the house, you know. I just didn't really like going out. It was out of my comfort zone, first of all, to be, you know, social. It just it was really scary to me. And um, so I would sit in the house. And I don't know if you guys remember this. Um, I'm 46. There was, I don't even know if it's still out, Ladies Home Journal. Is there still Ladies Home Journal? Well, they used to have this column, Can This Marriage Be Saved? <laughs> and I would sit inside the house and binge and eat candy and sneak candy, read this column. And it was like, already back then I was trying to figure it out, you know. It's like, which was another one of my problems. I thought if I could just figure it out, if I could just outsmart my disease, if I could just figure out what I was doing wrong or what was wrong or, you know. Um, so that was kind of, you know, I mean, my compulsive eating, my overeating, my undereating, it was like the dominant thing in my whole growing up. And when I went to college, it just went through the roof. I mean, um, one other thing in high school I can remember, I was in band, and um, we had to, um, they had these candy bar sales. I don't know, do kids still do this in school where you bring the candy bars home and you sell them? And it's like, forget it. I ate them all, you know, and then I, I had to get the money from my mom. And, you know, it's kind of like my parents were kind of, I think, they didn't really, they didn't really understand. I mean, neither of them had this. So I think my mom was just like, well, that was kind of a lot of candy to eat. Like, well, yeah, it was like two big boxes of candy bars, you know. And, um, you know, just stuff like that. I went to college, and I had this roommate who she was um, very sophisticated and thin and blonde, and she was from um, Detroit, which was the big city to me when I was at Michigan State. And so I just I had to eat her food. I mean, there was just no question about it. And she would come home from wherever she was, and she'd say, you know, where is my such and such? And it was just the two of us in the dorm room, you know. And I'd be like, I have no idea, you know. And she would get so pissed off at me. But you know what? It's I just think back and I just think, Jesus, you know. I mean, I didn't even want to be eating anymore. I didn't want to be eating because when I, I think when I was maybe before 17, I could kind of eat without with impunity, like it says in the book. I could eat and eat and eat, and I never. When I went to college, something happened. For one, it started really gaining the weight, and for two, it started really making me feel sick. And um, it wasn't until I moved to California, which was in 1997, that I ran into a woman who became my sponsor at that time because I heard her talk about the disease, and she pinned it down to one thing, and she said, when you're eating against your own will, when you want to stop more than anything on the planet and you still can't stop. And that's for me what it became like um, and what it was like for, you know, all through college. I'm the kind of person who, um, because I'm a binger, um, I can get through anything as long as I can know, I know I can binge and let the lid off the teapot, right? You know, the, you know. I can get through anything as long as I know I can binge on the other side. At least that's how I lived back then. I got through college that way. I got through graduate school that way. I was an outstanding graduate graduate student two years in a row in my college. And every night I came home and I binged my brains out while I did my homework. I passed out on the couch, which I thought was falling asleep to the 11 o'clock news. It was not falling asleep. 
when I got absent, I had to learn how to go to sleep. I didn't even know how to go to sleep because every night of my life I had passed out because I was so, my blood sugar was just so whacked from everything that I'd eaten during the day. Um, I can remember being in college and I was in summer school one summer. And um, so, you know, Michigan in the summer is quite beautiful. I mean, gorgeous campus, Michigan State, the beautiful campus. And I can remember, I, I, this was one of the times I swore off sugar, because I knew sugar just killed me. And, um, and so I was binging on health food, <laughs> you know. And so I binged on, I don't know, it was like, I don't need to go into detail about the food, but it was like honey and, some, I mean, I, like rice cake, peanut, some stupid thing. And I still, it got me so high, the sugar, you know, and the honey and just the, the quantity. I remember that time actually in my dorm room, it was an old dorm. It had this big wardrobe, right? And then at the top, this big cabinet in the wardrobe. And I can remember, I'm like, you know, I can't make myself stop eating this. So I climbed up on this chair, and I shoved all the food that I had in my dorm room way in the back of this cupboard at the top of this wardrobe. Because I'm thinking, surely, if I put it so far out of reach, you know, I won't, I'll at least be able to stay away from it for a little while. It was like five minutes. You know, what, five minutes went by and I was back on the chair dragging it back down. You know, it's just like the story of my life with food. I just could not stop, even when it was starting to make me so sick. And um, I got through graduate school because I can get through anything knowing I can let the lid off with food on the other side. And um, I got my first real job. And I worked for an ad agency in Michigan. And... Um, I sat in my little cubicle, and I computer programmed, and I, I just binged all day. I sat at my cubicle, and um, I sometimes wonder why we don't talk more about gas in Overeaters Anonymous, because I had so much gas. I mean, come on. This is Overeaters Anonymous, right? I mean, I have a friend who's been in the program a long time. She's the cast iron stomach variety, right? She could literally eat everything and the kitchen sink and be fine. She's in recovery, but um, I, not me, you know. I mean, I don't know if I just damaged my stomach so much or what, but I, I perfected the art of glaring at the person next to me as if they had been the one that had done it, you know. I mean, it's... And it's hard when you're on a date, you know. And again, it's, this is the problem. You know, in my dorm room, it was just me and her. You know, when it's just you and the other person, it's harder to cover stuff. But, um, and therefore, the only solution then when you're a compulsive eater is to not date, right? I mean, that's the solution. Um, and I did. I kept withdrawing more and more from life. I had my little job in my little cubicle. I go, would go home at night. I would bake cookies. I would buy it, whatever. I'd binge my guts out, go to bed, get up the next morning. And um, I'm a pretty determined person, so I can gut my way through something, and I would gut my way through every day. And then, um, I, short, short story, I was doing pretty well at this ad agency because I can fake it pretty good. I can look like I've got it together when I'm completely falling apart on the inside. And I got the assignment of presenting. Back then, we didn't have multimedia. We didn't have DVDs. This was 1988. And so I'm doing this presentation to uh, a big automotive company. Automotive companies back then were 
pretty much men, all men. So now I'm in the executive boardroom, which I thought was pretty hot shit, right? And um, I had been on a binge, a, a long binge roll. And, of course, I was always in denial about the weight gain, so I was wearing my suit, my business suit, which by then was a couple sizes too small. We didn't have multimedia, so all of our advertising boards, all of our storyboards were all on cardboard, real storyboards. And so in, the room, in front of this room full of male executives, I bent down to pick up the storyboards, and I split out the entire back of my skirt. And I had on a jacket that covered it, but um, it, it, everybody knew what had happened in the room, and I was devastated. And, um, you know, what do they say? What's that saying about um, you, can, you, you can't save your, what's that? You can't save face and save your ass at the same time, right? And, hey, if it's pride that gets somebody to Overeaters Anonymous and it helps to end the pain, I say, wonderful, good, whatever works. Whatever to get out of the hell of compulsive overeating, whatever it takes. And um, and I went to my first meeting not long after that and um, landed in this wonderful meeting in Detroit, Michigan, in this little church, in this little basement. And I met my first sponsor. He used to say to me, I'd call her and I'd say, you know, this is going on my back. And she'd say, are you abstinent? And I'd say, yeah, you don't understand. She'd say, are you abstinent? And she drilled it into my head that, and I, you know, it took me a while to understand this, you know. In this program, there are lots of people who come here and they work the steps and they get spiritual and they find God and they're able to get abstinent. There are other people who come here, like me, and unless I put down the food, period, bottom line, I wasn't going to be able to do anything. I wasn't going to be able to do anything. And I truly believe that there are both those types of people and even more in Overeaters Anonymous. I just know myself. I know my type. If I was dinking around with the food, especially if I was doing sugar, which completely mind and mood alters me, there is no way I would be able to get on my knees and ask for help. I wouldn't be able to do it. I heard this old timer in Michigan say the two hardest things for us to say are, I'm sorry, and please help me. And if I was in the food, I never would have said either one of them. And the please help me is especially, especially crucial for me because I've got that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it on my own, you know. And our literature says we have to stop the deadly business of living alone with our problems. You know, self-reliance was as good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. It just doesn't. It doesn't go far enough. I can't fix it on my own. I can't fix it my food problem on my own. I need a lot of help. And I take a lot of antidepressants. And before Mike and Walter stop freaking out, I will tell you, the antidepressants that I take that work every time for me are meetings and service and calling. And I'm not passing judgment on drugs. I'm just saying to you, that's what lifts my ism. That is what lifts my ism. And the number one thing I have to do is I absolutely have to commit myself to abstinence. And um, it's not because I'm holier than thou. It's not because I think it's some lofty goal. It's because if I don't, I don't even have a chance. I don't have a chance. The kind of compulsive eater that I am 
if I don't commit myself to abstinence and to going through whatever discomfort and pain or frustration or sorrow that I have to go through without picking up the food, if I don't commit myself to that, I'm not going to have a chance at anything in my life. And, um, you know, that little meeting in that little basement church, it changed my life. I, um, I weighed and measured my food for a long time. It's what I needed to do. I, um, I relate to all the feelings coming up that you talked about because when I first committed myself to abstinence, of course I was going to do as little as I could. And as little as I could meant I was going to commit myself to like a basic general kind of plan. And that would have been fine for some people in this program, abstinence is not thrown up. For some people, abstinence is eating three healthy meals a day. For some people, it's three meals and three cents, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of different shapes and forms of what works for us. But um, I thought, I'll just commit myself to this general kind of plan, like no sugar. It's like, oh, my gosh, should I talk about the gas that comes from sugar substitutes? I mean, the gas is even worse. It's like... I can remember going to the store and I'm buying these no sugar brownie mix, right? And then I was like so ravenous for it. I'm making it in the microwave, but it wasn't really like a microwave, microwavable recipe, right? And so not only was it like this big gloppy, half cooked, half overcooked, half moosh mess, which I ate anyway, you know, it gave me so much gas. Oh my god! And I was like, you know, I mean, hey. I, I tried it all. I tried every which way to get around simply being committed to clean abstinence. And by then I'd gotten a different sponsor because my first sponsor had moved along. And this was this wonderful woman. She was 65 years old, and she used to say, abstinence tastes better than any food ever will. Abstinence tastes better. And it was kind of like words in the air when I heard her say that. Because I was like, no, you don't get it. Abstinence is hard. You know, it's like... Oh, my God, I remember going to my first wedding abstinent. My friend, one of my best friends got married. It's like the cake. The cake. All I can think of is the cake, you know. I mean, it was like nothing else was real to me except at this wedding, you know. I mean, but this is the obsession, right? This is the obsession. I mean, I wouldn't have had to come here if I wasn't so obsessed. It just. I couldn't, I, I couldn't see my friend and how happy she was with her new husband. I, you know, and by then I had a few tools. Prayer. Oh, my God. Thank God for prayer. I remember I got, well, I won't use foul language because I'm being taped. <laughs> I got my butt out of that chair, and I went into a public bathroom at this, this is Michigan, right? So weddings are at, like, the Vikings Hall or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this was not the nicest bathroom you've ever seen in your life, right? I didn't care, man. I got down on my knees. I got down on my knees and I said, please, please help me. And it wasn't so much the pain of stopping what had been a lifelong habit. That's painful. But the pain was knowing that if I picked up, I'd have to be starting all over again the next day, and it would be even harder. And I used to hear people say, it's easier to stay abstinent than get abstinent. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> but it, for me, it is, man. I mean, getting over that hump, getting through those first 90 days, I mean, that is a miracle, an absolute, to me, absolute miracle. And I remember, I came out of that bathroom, and I felt empowered. I felt like, you know what? 
I can make it to this wedding because the thing that really, really grieved me was knowing that I was missing out on life. There was my friend with the man that she had been wanting to marry for five years, the love of her life, out there on the dance floor having the best time starting this whole new adventure with her love, and I was missing it, you know? I was missing it. And I just didn't want to miss life anymore. Um, I was still working at the ad agency by then. I mean, they promoted me a few times. I had a really, really wonderful, sweet boss who took me under my under his wing and really kind of mentored me and guided me. And I had the clarity of abstinence to get me through the day. It started getting easier and easier. It started becoming more of a habit, more of a way of life. Um, it, I think of my, um, my abstinence in chapters. I came to Overeaters Anonymous in 1988 in the fall. I got abstinent for a little bit. I completely lost it over the holidays. I didn't get my abstinence back until April of the following year, 1989. By the grace of God, this coming April, I will have had 20 years of continuous uninterrupted abstinence, which is a complete gift from God, an absolute miracle. The peace of mind and the freedom from the obsession. Um, Not freedom from problems or freedom from the challenges of living, but freedom from my obsession. And um, I've totally lost my train of thought. Um, Anyway, I started learning how to use the tools. I had this wonderful, I I had wonderful sponsors. I got this home group in Detroit, Michigan. I mean, of all places, it was like I had to drive 30 minutes to this little church in this, again, in this, what is it with this basement? I'm so glad we're on the second floor. It's like, you know, so many, I've been to so many church, church basements. I'm so grateful. And um, I, you know, I, it, I started going to my, my home group, became the Back to, Basics, Back to Basics Abstinence Group in Detroit, Michigan. I went loyally to that group um, for the, the nine, nine years that I lived there. So, um, oh, I was saying the chapters. Um, I think of OA, my OA life in chapters. The first five years were really white knuckle for me. And so if there's anybody here who is in, you know, the um, earlier stages of abstinence, my obsession was not lifted. I had moments of it being lifted, like when I came out of that bathroom after I prayed at my friend's wedding. I mean, I prayed a lot. I did other presentations in that executive conference room and um, every single time I would go into that bathroom and I would pray and I'd say thank you so much that I can go in there with a clear head and I'm not stoned on sugar Um, but the first five years were hard for me and it took me going through something that just completely broke my heart in two and it really I look back and I think okay yeah you met him you thought he was the one you fell in love it didn't work out that's kind of how it was but at the time I just felt so devastated. And, um, but you know what? That happening at that time in my life, I can still remember the apartment I lived in in Michigan. It was really in, in the middle of winter, really cold, all the snow outside. And I can remember I got down on my knees in front of my little patio, right? And I just said, help me. Please help me. And um, from that point on, it got easier. It got to where it didn't feel like I was fighting it all the time. It got to feel even more like just a way of life. Yeah, I eat three meals a day. 
And no, I don't do truck driver meals anymore. And no, I don't eat to the point where I feel like I'm going to throw up and still call it a meal because I only had it all in one spot even though I ate for an hour and a half. You know, I mean, I I just wasn't doing any of that stuff anymore. I mean, I was actually really feeling the compulsion get lifted even more. You know, more shall be revealed. And feeling even more of a sense, not so much of the presence of my higher power, but just how good and kind and loving that power is. And how much that power, I don't care what anybody calls it, wants, like my son used to say, nothing but the very, very best for you, better than you can ever imagine. And she's saying your higher power loves you more than you can ever love yourself or anybody else. And I I would hear her say that and I would just think, how is that even possible, you know? But she used to say it to me over and over and over again until I finally started believing it. I don't know that I felt like I deserved it. And even today, and I'll honestly, I'm not sure I even still think I deserve it. I mean, I've still got a long ways to go in terms of feeling good about life. I still push myself too hard. I still set the bar way high. I think I have to jump this higher. I'm not worth it. Whatever. I mean, maybe those are my kind of demons or whatever that I get to fight with. But I tell you what, I know that I believe it more than I used to. And I know that I feel it in my heart more than I used to. And I know that I must because I don't fight the food anymore. Like it says, we cease fighting anything or anyone. I'm still waiting for the anyone. <laughs> still waiting for the anyone part. I still seem to like to fight. Not, I don't mean fight, fight. I just mean... Uh, we were talking before the meeting, and I was saying, I still have more opinions that are good for me, <laughs> you know, and I like to sometimes offer them freely. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, zip the lip, for crying out loud, they don't need to hear it. Um, you know, I mean, all that stuff is, st- I'm still working on all that stuff. I'm not going to be rendered perfect at any moment. There's nobody that's going to ma- wave a magic wand, and it's going to, all of a sudden, life, I'm going to have the answer to life, you know. But more and more, I get it. More and more every day, I get that I get to be here. I get to be a part of it. I get to participate. I get to really feel life, which when I was compulsively eating, I, honest to God, I did not feel anything. I mean, I was like the walking dead. You talk about um, blackouts and other programs. And I don't know why I never heard this term before. One of my girlfriends just the other day said, um, she said brownout, you know. And I'm like, God, that's what I was doing the whole time I was eating. It was like I was aware. I mean, I remember every moment, but I wasn't really there. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't really there. And um, I, you know, I've been able to go through things in abstinence that I never, ever thought I would be able to go through. Um, I can remember coming in here, that very first meeting in that one little church in Michigan, my very first meeting, I still remember two things that hit me really hard. One of them was there was a woman there who said she hadn't had sugar for five years, which I thought, okay, that's fine. I mean, strap me to a chair. I could do that too. You know, lock me in a basin somewhere. But she said, and I don't even really miss it. Holy crap. She hasn't had it, and she doesn't even miss it anymore. I thought, wow, that, that's the compulsion being lifted. I thought, that, that's what I want. And the other thing that really hit me in that meeting, um, 
<laughs> I know it really hit me. I just. <laughs> It will come to me. See, this is what happens when I have people. I've heard psychologists say, if you're thinking a negative thought, think a positive thought, because it's impossible for the human brain to think two things at once. And I'm thinking, have you looked inside my brain? It is possible for me to think like 50 things at once and then try to tell you all about them all at once. Um, The other thing that got clear to me in that meeting that nobody was doing it alone. Nobody was coming to the meeting and then going off and kind of working their own quote-unquote self-help program. And I'm not putting down the self-help community. I'm just saying I heard people talk about this is not a self-help program. It's a get help and help others. And that was so important to me because that was the last thing on earth I wanted to do. I never went to a diet club. I never went to any, um, I never went any place where I would have been part of a group because I didn't want to admit that I needed help. I wanted to be able to fix it myself. And I sat in this room and I realized that these people were leaving the meeting and going to other meetings. They were calling each other in between meetings. They were going to book studies and they were reading the literature. They were having sponsors. And and it, it occurred to me that maybe if I opened up my heart to that, it would actually make my life feel more like living if I let other people in. And that started changing everything for me. You know, when I realized that I didn't have to live alone, live the de- you know, that deadly business of living alone with my problems anymore, that I didn't have to live that way anymore. Um, so the, those next five years were, you know, I think the years where I, I did surrender. Thank you. I found another another kind of surrender. I don't like to say level because I don't think any of us are on levels above or behind or whatever. It was a different kind of surrender for me. It it felt like it went way deep down inside, way deep down into my gut, that part that wanted me for so long to keep eating because it hurt so much. Um, but then the la- the next five years after that were kind of like, okay, now life is going to start happening. Um, I was with my grandmother on her deathbed, and this is the grandmother who, you know, was the matriarch of our family, who I saw, you know, every weekend when I was growing up. Um, My mom got seriously ill. I went and I took care of her for a while. She um, is doing great. Um, My sister has been diagnosed with a very um, advanced kind of breast cancer that's not just local. It's um, metastasized, and she, you know, they cannot get it to uh, remit. They can't get her in remission. It seems to be um, resistant to anything they throw at it. And the most we can kind of hope for is that the tumors stay the size they are. I've been able to go there and shave my sister's head when her hair was falling out. I've been able to um, be with friends when they've been in the deepest, darkest relapse I've ever seen in my life. My best friend, my sister, and my heart got sucked into this disease so bad again for three years that I would go visit her and I would just hold her head. I tell you what, I don't ever want to go back there. I don't ever want to go back to living what that was like. When there's so much joy in life, there's so much beauty in life. There's so much 
sharing with other people. I get to have someone really special in my life now who I know loves me unconditionally. And I just, that is an unbelievable thing to really feel that kind of love. I get to have children in my own life. It's not been my um, destiny to have my own, but I have children in my life who are so amazing and help me to look at life in ways that I never see, you know, just the crazy things they say and the crazy things they do and just how it can just be the stupidest thing is just so funny and just that feeling of knowing that because of this program I'm able to have family. I mean, in every sense of the word, I'm able to have love in my life and there's room for me to give it because I'm not completely consumed with what I'm going to get, how I'm going to get it, how I'm going to get it in my mouth, what I'm going to eat after that. When I used to be in the middle of a binge, I would think to myself, I would think, you're going to have to stop sometime, you know? I mean, because I would get into these deep, dark binges, and I would think, you can't live your whole life like this, you know? I mean, at the time I was like 24, 23 years old, I was in graduate school. It's like, how am I going to live, how am I going to get married? How am I going to walk down the aisle? How am I going to do things in my life when I'm always thinking about food? And um, and that was the thing. I would think, you're going to have to stop sometime, but I never could. And it wasn't until I came here and I started really working the program. I started taking my antidepressants. <laughs> which for me come in the form of reading the big book, reading our beautiful brown book. I love our 12 and 12. It talks about, um, you know, we ate to save the fear. We ate to escape. We hid and we ate. Jesus, that's all I needed to read. I read that sentence right there and I was like, that's me. That's what I did. Um, you know, getting to work with others. I mean, um, getting to really watch somebody... Uh, a young woman I sponsored, you know, she was so anorexic, literally her bones were falling apart. And to see her now, she's happy, she's married, she's healthier, she's doing so well. I mean, to have, to get a second chance at life, you know, it's such an amazing thing. Um, I know my time is winding down here, and I'm trying to think what else I want to say. I guess... Um, you know, I don't know what the last five years have been <laughs> in my recovery. It's been kind of a mystery. It's kind of like I've been kind of saying to God, what next? You know, what do you want me to do next? Because I feel like um, I've been given this gift of um, a way of life that heals us. And I heard it said in the program that, you know, we... We can try to change all we want, and that's how it was for me for a long time. I kept trying to change myself. I kept trying to change myself. But I've been able to come here and basically just follow what's suggested, and I've been able to recover despite myself. That, you know, this program has just carried me along through really hard times sometimes and through a lot of joy, too. And I've been kind of just, I don't know, um... Lately, I just feel like maybe it's because I'm 47 <laughs> and I'm wondering, what do you want now, God? I mean, what what do you want from me? What am I really, what do you want me to be doing with my life and in my absence? And maybe there are some things that um, are passions that now is the time that I can maybe take a look at and dare to um, to try, you know, going after those things. Um, 
I know that for me it's always going to be about the program. I know this is a one-day-at-a-time deal, but this is where I have healed my heart. This is where my home is. This is where I want to be. And, you know, we were laughing before the meeting about people who are like, you still go to those meetings? I mean, it's like it's been 20 years and my parents still don't really understand what Overeaters Anonymous is. It's like, um, it's like they have a weird mental block, you know. Like, I guess they just don't really want to still think of me as having this problem or something. Um, and, and that's fine. Um, they, they love me. They support me. It's... It all works. But I don't think of this as something that I'm doing for a little while and then I can get on with life. This is a part of my life. It's the fabric of my life. It's the themes, you know. It's what holds me together. And I can't say that all the time, every day I get up, woo, it's time to meditate. Yes, you know. I mean, I just don't. I mean, I wake up, honestly, I wake up and I have a couple meditation books that I have on my pillow next to me because... I'm just going to be honest with you. If I get up out of bed and I get into my day, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not. I just, I'm, you know, like I told you, I'm that personality. I just get going way too quick. And so I wake up and I reach over, you know, and I feel for them and I read them then, you know, because I've had to, I mean, we all come in here with things that are easy and things that are harder, you know, and I've just learned that there are certain things I absolutely have to do for my recovery and sometimes I just have to find a way to make sure I do it because otherwise it's just, it's not going to get done. And the thing is, it's like, I don't want to do stuff that makes me feel bad anymore. You know, I really don't. I want to be able to feel good in life. And because of this program and because of having a higher power that I know loves me and wants the very, very best for me, even though I don't always feel it all the time, um, I still know it's the truth. And that's something that I didn't know before I came here. So... Um, I think I'm supposed to leave for questions. So thank you. Thank you very much for, um, for being here. Really Do I stay up here for questions? Yeah, a question about conscious contact. Um, I kind of feel like in the beginning of my program, it was really important for me to be pretty regimented about things because I was loosey-goosey like all over the place. And so the more that I kind of had structure, the better I did. And so in the beginning, I really structured where I had the meditation time in the morning. I did um, what's called gentle eating. I don't know. That's just what we called it back in Michigan. I don't know if it's an OA or a non-OA term where I would actually like pray during my meal that became really important to me. Um, but over time, it's kind of become more, it's kind of just become more like I, I just, it's always in my mind that, um, but for the grace of God, I wouldn't have anything that I've got today. And I'm just so grateful. I don't know that I, I don't know what formal prayer is anymore. I know I sometimes do formal prayer, but a lot of the time, I just am talking to whatever this, I call it the source of all goodness that wants those wonderful things for all of us in life. And I just try as much as I can to 
not go where I naturally go, which like that guy called the ants, automatic negative thoughts. Ask me on any day what's going to happen that day, and I'll say, well, you know, she's going to hit the fan, and, you know, I'll probably get fired. I mean, I just, and it all feels really real. And that's why I used to have to eat, because it was so terrifying. And I just, I try to not do that. I try to not terrify and depress myself with my own thinking. I try to catch myself and say, you know what, that's just a thought. That's all it is. And I try to get right back on track and get really connected to, in my head, to the fact that, you know what, there's all kinds of good in this world. I want to be part of it. I, I know that my higher power wants me to be part of it. How can I stay tuned in to all of that good? The way I eat, the way I interact with my family, the way I treat my clients. Can I treat them with the kindness and the love that I want people to treat me? I mean, it's kind of, it's like a gratitude slash karma thing, you know, because I, I think it, does, it, it comes back, and I want, I want to feel the good in life. I feel like we've come here and we've all suffered for so long. Enough is enough. I want to try and get connected into the good, you know, the good orderly direction, the calm, the peace, the knowing that even when the world economy falls apart, that life is okay, even though it's a Valentine's Day and I freaking hate Valentine's Day, that it's all okay. You know, I mean, I remember having dinner with a friend when I first came into the program and I was like, going on about all this stuff. She's like, I said, but I know it's going to be okay. And she goes, Sherry, she said, it's all okay right now. And I think I'll spend my whole life trying to understand that. You know, I, I understand it a little bit more, but I think that's probably a big journey for me to try to, to really get it, that all my needs are going to be met, that I don't have to try and be in control of it, that I don't have to try and manage it at all, that things, you know, that saying, don't push the river. <laughs> like I need, like, a billboard outside my my house or something. I think, you know, just all that stuff really trying to just really focus on all the goodness. I mean, look around a meeting, you know. I mean, that's really where I get connected to. I, I wouldn't be able to do it just by myself.